A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the love you have shown us in Christ Jesus. May we learn to show that same love to one another. Would you empower us to show this love? Through your Holy Spirit, this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A mom once noticed that her teenage son was acting somewhat indifferent to the things of the Lord. And so to jar him out of his spiritual apathy, she asked, Don't you want to go to heaven? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. Who else is going? Now that's kind of sad. I know no kid in this church would ever do that. But it's also kind of true, isn't it? That is kind of how we go through life. Anytime we're going somewhere, we want to know who else will be there. And we really can't help but think that way because we're wired for relationships. We're wired for community. We're built for interaction with one another. We are made for fellowship, for communion. This is really what Monday Thursday is all about. Monday Thursday is about taking that hunger and thirst we have for human community and recalibrating it to God's design. It's about taking that hunger and thirst, that longing that we have for human connection, and recalibrating it to the gospel, to the cross of Jesus Christ. We want community. We want to belong. We want to be connected. But what should that look like? On Jesus' last night with his disciples before his crucifixion, he showed us what true community looks like. Jesus knew his time on earth was short. He knew he would soon be crucified. He knew, too, he would be raised on the third day and then ascend to heaven on the 40th day. But what would Jesus leave behind as his legacy? What would he leave behind? What he would leave behind is a community, this community, the church. He would leave his disciples behind. He would leave us behind to carry on his mission, to represent his rule as his ambassadors, to follow his example, his pattern of life. But what makes the church the church? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? What makes the church the church? What are the virtues and practices that build and sustain Christian community, the kind of community God wants us to be, the kind of community God calls us to be? I think there are three virtues that really stand out, three virtues that stand out to me in this text in John chapter 13 that really define the church, that make the church the church. These are three virtues that build and sustain the community of Jesus. They're love, hospitality, and friendship. Let's look at each one of these. Love is obvious. That's really the theme of the chapter. It's the theme of this night in the church calendar. Uh, The the love commandment is really the centerpiece of this passage. In uh, John chapter 13, we just read this. John gives, uh, John records Jesus giving to us a new commandment. And what is this new commandment? That we would love one another as he has loved us. He's given us a new example, a new model, a new pattern to follow in our love for one another. Note he doesn't say, love me as I have loved you. 
He says, love one another as I have loved you. It's not that we're commanded to pay it back. We're commanded to pay it forward. Now, it's not that Jesus is indifferent to the love we have for him. But rather, I I think the thinking here is something like this. Once Jesus is no longer bodily present on this earth, how do we love Jesus? How do we show love for Jesus? The primary way we show love for Jesus is by loving his disciples, by loving one another. It's our love for one another that demonstrates our love for Jesus. We learn in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, a little bit later this evening, after they have their meal and after they uh, leave the upper room, uh, as Jesus goes out to pray, we learn that this love we are to have for one another is really patterned after the love of the Trinity, the love the Father and the Son have for one another. God is love. That's God's very essence. God is love. When he commands us to love, he is commanding us to imitate his own way of life. But more than that, he's inviting us to share in his way of life. God is love is the most profound statement you've ever heard. The most profound statement that could ever be made. Because it brings us to the very heart of reality. It's really a clue to the mystery of the universe, certainly, but ultimately the mystery of God. Who God is, is bound up in that statement, God is love. Who is God? God is a trinity. That's what it means to say God is love. If God were not a trinity then you can't say God is love because love requires three things, a lover, a beloved, and the love they share. If God was only one person, a one-person God perhaps could be a lover, but he could not be love. He could not be love in itself. You couldn't say that. But God is triune. God is love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the Spirit is the love they share, proceeding from them both from all eternity. God exists eternally in this circle of love, this relationship of love. God is love. Again, if God were not a trinity, you couldn't say that. That would make God dependent on us, on his creatures, in order to love. But that's not the picture of God we have. The picture of God we have in the scriptures is a God who is complete in himself. A God who does not need us. A God who is love in himself. So we're commanded to love. We're commanded to imitate God in the way we love. To love one another the way the Father and Son love one another. We're commanded to love with the love of God. But I don't have to tell you this is hard. I don't have to tell you there are all kinds of challenges in this. Uh, Many of us find this challenging because we're so idealistic. We're so idealistic about the church. We're more in love with the idea of the church than the church actually actually exists. But Jesus doesn't say to love an idea. He doesn't say to love an ideal. He says to love one another. We can't just love the idea of the church, the idea of Christian community. We have to love one another. Many of us struggle with this because we're more concerned with being loved than giving love. We're more concerned with our own belonging than we are with welcoming others in. But the fact is, you cannot love like Jesus when you're focused on yourself. You cannot love like Jesus unless you are focused more on serving others than being served. That's how you really begin to show this love, when you're no longer focused on how others can serve you, but how you can serve others. When you're not just focused on uh, who can befriend you, but how you can befriend others. 
You can't just show up and find community. The kind of community Jesus is describing here and calling us to here is a community that takes effort. I've got to remember, too, that community is often messy and that relationships of this sort are costly. Think about the the cost involved for Jesus. The cost Jesus paid to befriend us was his own life. That shows you right there that community has cost, that it's costly, that it requires sacrifice. Now, the cost we pay to be with one another is going to be nothing compared to the cost that Jesus paid to be with us. But Jesus shows us there's always a cost to be borne, a sacrifice to be made if we're going to have community. But what Jesus also shows is whatever cost there is, whatever sacrifice is involved, it is worth it to live in this kind of community. We see, too, the messiness of community here. The messiness of community uh, would be on display that very night. You've got Peter who boasts and then goes on later that night to betray Jesus. You've got the other disciples who scatter in Jesus' time of great need, leaving him all alone on that night to face his enemies alone. This will be a night when the fellowship of the saints fails. The band of brothers breaks apart. The disciples turn away from Jesus and from one another. But afterwards, and Jesus makes this clear, afterwards Jesus will forgive them. Jesus will restore them to his community. Jesus will restore their bonds of love. And that's what gives us hope. In the midst of the messiness, we can know that Jesus is building his church, that he's building a community. No, the church's community is not perfect. It's flawed in all kinds of ways. We know that from our own experience. We know that from our own failures. But there is still a love to be found here that cannot be found anywhere else. What else can we say about this love? Don't confuse this love, this agape that Jesus is talking about here with feelings. This is one of the greatest mistakes that our culture makes. Love in its fullest expression, certainly includes feelings of affection and attraction. But love is fundamentally not a feeling. It is fundamentally an action. It's a decision. It's a commitment to act in the best interests of the other. Now, you might ask, how can we love someone we don't like? Well, I would say it's quite easy. In fact, you do it all the time with yourself. You always love yourself even when you don't like yourself, even when you're mad at yourself and frustrated with yourself. Even then, you're loving yourself, seeking your own good. Even when you criticize yourself, when you're hard on yourself, you do those things precisely because you love yourself. Indeed, I think what this shows us is is that loving one another is not a matter of just making everybody happy all the time. It doesn't mean you're never going to hurt somebody's feelings. Sometimes love will do that. Love can be tough. Love can even be harsh. But let me let you in on a little secret here. When you act in loving ways towards others that you don't really feel affection towards, oftentimes those actions will spur the feelings, and your feelings will eventually catch up with your actions. That's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will eventually come to love them. And that's exactly right. 
That's the kind of love we're called to. This love Jesus calls us to is highly specific. It's particularized. Uh, The Bible never commands us to love humanity. It says to love your neighbor or to love one another. Jesus didn't die for humanity. He died for you and for me. The cross has each of our names on it. Our our names are engraved upon the palm of his hand. Uh, John 10 tells us that Jesus, as the good shepherd, calls each of his sheep by name. He knows us each individually. He loves us each in a particular way. We're called to do the same. You are called to love, not humanity in general in some kind of abstract way. You're called to love the actual individuals in your life, to love them by name, to love them in particular and specific ways. But you might say, not everyone in my life is worthy of love. Indeed, not even all the Christians in my life are worthy of love. And I would say back to you, I'm sure that's very true. I won't try to argue the point. Love is not blind, but love is bound. It's bound to the beloved. And love is not tied to the worth of its object. See, the thing is, as soon as we start thinking that way, what happens is we go looking for excuses not to love people. Well, I don't have to love this person if they've got X, Y, and Z wrong with them. And what do you know? When you go looking for excuses to not love people, you can find them. You can find reasons not to love people. You can find reasons not to love someone. But Jesus won't let us off the hook so easily. The love he's calling us to doesn't dwell on the worthiness of the beloved. Peter Kreef tells the story of his son when his son was about six years old, asking him, Daddy, why do you love me? And and the way Kreef tells the story, he says he began to give the wrong answers, the answers he thought his son was looking for. He said, you're a great kid, you're you're good and smart and strong. But he says, I could see disappointment on his face, and so I decided to be honest. He said, oh, I just love you because you're mine. I love you because you're mine. I love you because I love you. And his son got this big smile on his face and gave his dad a hug and said, thanks, daddy. That's it. It's not about the worthiness of the beloved. It's about this call to love in the way Jesus loves. The final command Jesus gives his disciples, this summarizing command he gives to them is to love. It's not to think. It's not to study. It's not to work. It's not even to pray or to worship. It's a command to love. Love makes the church the church. Love defines the church. Love builds the church. Love sustains the church. But there's something else here. Jesus shows his disciples an act of extraordinary hospitality there that night in the upper room. The church cannot be the church without being hospitable. Hospitality fosters the church. It creates the church. It builds the church. Certainly this is true of our mission to the world, our mission to the nations. Our mission requires us to show hospitality to those outside the church. We can't share the gospel unless we are willing to share our lives, unless we're willing to share our tables. Hospitality, especially inviting people into church and into our homes, may be the single most important ingredient in growing the church in our day. And I would say this is especially true for a church like TPC, like our congregation. Our church is very countercultural. If you haven't noticed, you know, we're very countercultural. 
And we have very good reasons for being countercultural in the ways that we are. But what that means is we've really got to be ten times more friendly and ten times more hospitable in order to grow, in order to convince people that this is a place worth hanging around long enough to, to, to see what it's really about, to see what really goes on here. Yeah, we do some weird things. We're kind of di- we're different from some other churches, certainly. But if we are friendly and hospitable in a radical kind of way, it will, it will put a hook in people that will convince them to stick with us long enough to figure out why we do the things we do. We have to make strangers feel welcome. Hospitality creates a sense of, of home, a sense of a place for people. It turns outsiders into insiders. And certainly that's part of our mission to the world. But you know, hospitality is also something we show one another. Hospitality is also to be extended to the saints, to one another within the church. That's what we see Jesus doing here. He is the master of hospitality. He's showing hospitality to his disciples. Now, how does he show hospitality? Where do you see that here? That word's not used here. Uh, So what's going on? Where do we see the hospitality? Well, Jesus shows hospitality by washing his disciples' feet. This was a dirty, filthy, disgusting job. You know, back in the days when people traveled on dirty roads in poorly made sandals, feet would get really disgusting. And so this was a very unpleasant task. But what did Jesus do? He took the towel, he took the basin, and he washed their feet. He was the host treating them as his honored guests. And of course, it's not just the the, the foot washing There's also the meal. He presides over the meal as well. He serves them a meal. And in doing this, of course, Jesus is just continuing the culture of feasting God established in Israel. You go back to ancient Israel, to the Torah, you see the Torah cultivated in Israel a real sense of fasting. God wants his people to be full of joy and and full of celebration. And that's what Jesus is doing in the upper room. It's a time of festivity. They are his honored dinner guests. And he's feeding them as an act of hospitality. Free food and drink for the disciples. Eating together is absolutely vital to the community Jesus is forming. Indeed, eating the meal Jesus gave us is one of the things that makes the church the church. It's one of those key practices that creates and nurtures true fellowship among us as disciples. You know, the whole Bible is really a story uh, that, that, that really can be broken down into a series of meals. That's really what the Bible is, a series of meals uh, in, in narrative form. You've got that first meal, really four key meals stand out. You've got that first meal in Eden that brought the curse where Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree. It's food poisoning for the whole human race. Then you've got the Passover meal that God gave to Israel, celebrating their redemption, defining them as a people. Then you've got this meal in John 13, the Last Supper, which is really the first supper of the New Age, the Lord's Supper, this transformed Passover, in which we now commune with Jesus through bread and wine, and we commune with one another as we take the bread and wine together. And interestingly, the church fathers called this meal, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the medicine of eternal life, the medicine of immortality, the antidote to that food poisoning that that Adam infected us all with. And then, of course, you've got the fourth meal, the final meal that is to come, the promised wedding feast of the Lamb. What table you eat at matters. It says everything about you. 
Do you eat at the Lord's table? Do you eat at the table of Jesus or at the table of demons? Where do you look for satisfaction? Where do you look to get your hungers satisfied? Do you go after the the delicacies of the wicked, as Psalm 141 describes? Or do you come to Jesus to be satisfied by feasting on Him? But you know, it's not just about the Lord's Supper. That's central, obviously, and that's unique. But Jesus wants even our most ordinary meals to be patterned after the special meal He gave us. Haven't you found that many of life's greatest moments and many of life's greatest conversations take place around the dinner table? We're not just strengthened by the food, we're strengthened by the fellowship. Isn't it interesting that God designed us in such a way that we have to stop what we're doing several times a day and devote our attention to eating? That's just a fact of human life. The table forms bonds in the way that nothing else can. That's why when a guy takes a girl out on a date, he he takes her out for dinner. Because you get to know one another at the table. That's how you get to know someone, by eating together. It's why we almost always celebrate with food. It's why we mark special occasions with special meals. The dinner table is a magical place. Certainly in the Bible, fasting is important. But fasting is always only temporary. It always gives way to feasting, and it's feasting that will go on forever. Fasting is the prelude. Feasting is the main event. Fasting is temporary. Feasting is forever. God told Adam and Eve to fast from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if they had kept that fast, He would have given them that tree for feasting in due time. That's always the pattern. Fasting paves the way for feasting. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is our tree of knowledge. Jesus is our tree of life. He is our manna from heaven. He is our Passover meal. He's not only the host, He offers Himself as the main course. And in eating His body and blood, we become one with Him. We become one with one another. We commune with Him and a community, a communion of saints, a new community is formed. As His disciples, He calls us to carry on His legacy through showing hospitality by being a festive, joyful community. The kind of people who break bread with one another from house to house, who share our tables and therefore our lives with one another. And finally, there's friendship. I think you see friendship as a theme here as well. John 13 does not explicitly mention friendship, but Jesus does mention it a couple chapters later in the upper room in John chapter 15. And there in John 15, he tells his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. He says to them, There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. What is the cross about? The cross is about friendship. Jesus goes to the cross to secure friendship with the likes of us. This is our greatest privilege, to be called friends of Jesus. Now, what a friend we have in sinners. We sing that, sing it tonight. What a friend we have in Jesus. Sinners that we are, he's laid down his life for us. Friendship with Jesus is what the gospel is all about. The best friendship of all is friendship with Jesus because he is the best friend of all. But of course, he calls us to friendship with one another as well. Friendship makes the church the church. 
One of the great problems today inside the church as well as outside the church is the poverty of friendship. In our culture at large, we are facing a loneliness epidemic. It's been called a loneliness epidemic. And it has not just ramifications for our spiritual lives, I think that's obvious, but even for our physical lives. And this has been studied and demonstrated. Studies have shown, for example, that the biggest threat, the biggest health threat that middle-aged men face is not obesity, it's not smoking, it's not drugs, it's loneliness. It's the biggest health threat that middle-aged men face. Loneliness is debilitating in every way. You know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam seemed to have it all. He had a beautiful environment. He had meaningful work. He had a place of worship. He walked with God. But God looked at that situation in the Garden and said, It is not good. Why? Because Adam did not have a friend. He was alone. He did not have a companion. Even before the fall, loneliness is presented as a dreadful condition. You know, we've gotten with our science and technology, we've gotten to where we're pretty good. We're pretty good at curing physical diseases. But there's no such cure for loneliness. The only cure for loneliness we found in love and friendship, and those are much harder to come by than any medicine or drug. Belonging. Belonging is so critical to our well-being. Just like food and shelter, so belonging is critical to our well-being. Friendship is crucial to having a sense of purpose and significance. You know what Jesus' biggest miracle was? You know what Jesus' biggest miracle was? Having 12 close friends in his 30s. I mean, who does that, right? Who who does that? How How can you pull that off? Who can find the time and energy to have close friends the way Jesus did? But it's a miracle we must pull off as well because this is what the church is all about. It's all about building friendships, building this kind of community. And friendship means knowing one another's struggles so we can pray for one another and help one another. It means overlooking one another's faults instead of weaponizing those faults and using them against one another means learning how to forgive, means building one another up through service and through encouragement. We can befriend one another because we've been befriended by Jesus. We have received his love freely, and so now we can freely give his love away. You know, love is the only thing that the more you give it away, the more of it you have. Nothing else that works that way. But love does, because when you lose your life in loving others, then you find real life, true life. We're called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. To love one another in showing hospitality to one another, in befriending one another. And so, brethren, let us love one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the hospitable and befriending love of Jesus, even as he has shown this love to us, may we follow this pattern and show this love to one another. We know we can only love because he has first loved us. We can only love you because he has first loved us. We can only love one another because Jesus has put it in our hearts to love. He has loved us first. Father, may our community, may our congregation here be a community that is overflowing with love as we seek to befriend one another and show one another hospitality. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.